The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled IgE-mediated food allergies, improving patient quality of life through a multidisciplinary approach as a new era of treatment dawns. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash QER860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, I'm Dr. Sharon Chintraja from the Sean N. Parker Center for Allergy and Asthma Research at Stanford University. Welcome to this educational activity on the management of IgE-mediated food allergies. I'm really excited that Dr. Bob Wood is joining me from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Let's start off discussing mechanisms of food allergy, understanding the difference between IgE and non-IgE-mediated allergies. Food allergies are a growing public health issue. They affect up to 8% of young children and almost 11% of adults in the U.S. alone. Among adults and children, 30 to 45% of food allergic patients have multiple food allergies. Food-induced emergency room visits have increased over 200% over the last few decades. Food allergies also cause significant impairment in quality of life and some nutritional deficiencies and typically nine foods in the U.S. Uh, make up most of food allergies. These include milk, egg, peanut, soy nut, tree nuts, wheat, fish, crustaceans, and sesame. It's important to understand the difference between a food allergy and a food intolerance. Food sensitivities or food intolerances can affect uh, any age and they can occur gradually, so within a few minutes or hours of eating it up to um, many days after ingestion of the culprit food. Uh, these are typically not life-threatening um, and typically involve lactose intolerances or enzymatic deficiencies, pharmacological effects from food products such as caffeine. Um, the most common one is lactose intolerance, which can cause abdominal cramping, bloating, and discomfort. Um, and patients can have multiple food sensitivities or intolerances. This is different from food allergies, uh, which can also occur at any age, and IgE-mediated food allergies typically occur within 30 minutes after the patient eats the suspect food and can occur up to two hours for most uh, foods. They can cause mild or severe allergic symptoms and these can be life-threatening allergic reactions. Again, in the United States, this is typically due to the top nine foods, uh, peanuts, tree nuts, eggs, milk, fish, shellfish. It also can be due to medications or stinging insects. And for food allergies, patient can have one food or many food allergies. Food allergies can be IgE-mediated or non-IgE-mediated. Immune-mediated food allergic reactions can be IgE-mediated, which we'll talk a lot more about during this talk. It can have mixed uh, immune effects with IgE and non-IgE-mediated um, mechanisms that are typical in atopic dermatitis or eosinophilic gastrointestinal disease. It can be non-IgE-mediated, such as food protein-induced enterocolitis or celiac disease, or it can have cellular-mediated mechanisms like allergic contact dermatitis. 
Non-immune mediated, again, are due to metabolic, pharmacologic, toxic reactions, or reactions to other things included in foods, such as additives. The clinical manifestations of IgE-mediated food allergy can vary from mild to severe reactions and can involve organ systems from head to toe. Uh, most commonly, skin is involved, and you can have rashes or hives or urticaria. Um, you can have swelling uh, of the lips um, or swelling of the tissues as part of an allergic reaction. Uh, also common are gastrointestinal side effects, including itchy throat or itchy mouth, uh, stomach pain, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. Um, upper airway symptoms like allergic rhinitis symptoms, such as nasal congestion or sneezing, and more concerning symptoms involving the lower respiratory tract, such as persistent cough or wheezing, shortness of breath, um, and uh, in rare cases, cardiovascular side effects with a uh, drop in blood pressure with um, systemic anaphylaxis. Let's take a closer look at the IgE-mediated allergic reaction to foods with this short video clip. IgE-mediated reactions are associated with the rapid onset of symptoms, usually within a few minutes to a few hours after the ingestion of the offending food. The food allergens involved in IgE-mediated reactions are typically naturally occurring proteins in foods. After ingestion, the allergen travels to the stomach and beyond. Allergens encounter antigen-presenting cells in the skin and GI tract, which lead to the production of IgE antibodies directed against the specific allergen. These IgE antibodies then circulate to tissues throughout the body and attach to mast cells in various tissues and basophils in the blood. This is called sensitization. Once sensitized, the body is primed to react on subsequent exposures. When the specific allergenic food is eaten again, the allergen travels to the stomach and beyond. Allergens encounter mast cells and basophils with bound IgE antibodies all over the body. Allergens cross-link the two IgE antibodies on the surface of the mast cell or basophil cell, which causes the cells to degranulate, releasing histamine and other mediators, including prostaglandins and leukotrienes. These mediators bind with receptors in various tissues and initiate an allergic response. The care of the food allergic patient involves a multidisciplinary approach. The primary care physician plays a crucial role in diagnosis and in the possibility of prevention with early introduction of foods in infancy and uh, guiding treatments and understanding when to refer the food allergic patient to a specialist such as an allergist. There are many algorithms to try and understand and aid the physician in ruling in or ruling out a suspect food allergy. But typically, the most important part of uh, diagnosis, as in many diseases, is a good clinical history. So understanding the allergic symptoms that are occurring with food reactions in the individual is really important. Um, and again, understanding IgE-mediated disease and um, which organ systems are involved are really important. Uh, I always say that the patient is the best detective and storyteller, 
Um, and we try to understand if these reactions are happening every single time that that food is ingested. And if that's the case, then that points us um, towards uh, a food allergy mediated reaction as opposed to um, a drug reaction or something else that's going on. Um, are there cofactors that are present in the allergic reaction? Sometimes in the food allergic patient, cofactors such as um, fevers or viral illness, um, exercise, uh, anything that can raise the core temperature can lower the threshold um, that's necessary to elicit an allergic reaction. Um, and understanding the timing of when the allergic reaction occurs um, in regards to when the patient is eating the food will help, under, help the provider steer towards whether or not this is an IgE-mediated reaction. Again, if it occurs within 30 minutes up to two hours of ingesting the food, that points towards an IgE-mediated reaction. There are many steps to diagnosing and managing the food allergic patient. First, again, is uh, understanding the clinical symptoms and the story. And then uh, that often happens at the pediatrician, the primary care office, uh, the family practice office, the general provider. Um, if they suspect that a food allergy is present, then um, they can refer to an allergist where other testing can be done, such as blood tests looking for specific IgEs based on the clinical history, or skin prick tests assessing specific foods and uh, looking to see if uh, those are responsible for the food allergic reaction. Based on a combination of skin prick tests, uh, blood tests, and clinical history, um, the allergist may then decide whether or not an oral food challenge is needed. The oral food challenge is the gold standard for diagnosing a food allergy. And in the clinical setting, it's really important in ruling out a food allergy because the implications of a diagnosis of food allergy uh, are significant, uh, as well as the burden for the patient and the family. So an oral food challenge involves eating the suspect food to the patient in a supervised setting in the medical office um, in small and increasing amounts uh, and observing the patient to see if they have concerning signs of an allergic reaction. Um, based on that, whether they think it's an IgE-mediated food allergy or non-IgE-mediated food allergy, that then guides different treatment pathways, um, elimination diets, uh, and making sure that there's an emergency action plan in place. There's a significant amount of education that's needed to understand what foods to avoid with a food allergy diagnosis and how to recognize symptoms of an allergic reaction and how to treat an allergic reaction appropriately. Uh, I've talked about skin prick tests and blood tests uh, in the diagnosis of food allergy. Um, as well as an oral food challenge. There's very exciting testing out there in the uh, research world, including basophil activation tests. And uh, many of us are interested in using these tests um, or finding better diagnostic tests uh, to replace the oral food challenge, which can be burdensome to the patient and to the family um, and uh, there's a lot of work to try and get us there.
Dr. Wood, do you have any thoughts here on the role of biomarkers in the diagnosis or care of the food allergic patient? Well, I, I think the key is what you said. This is a, a really a huge unmet need. And uh, because the tests that we usually use, like skin tests and specific Ig tests, are not terribly accurate, we do end up having to do a lot of food challenges, which carry some risk and can be time consuming. And anything that we could do to uh, better identify someone who truly has food allergy without having to do a food challenge would be of great, great value. The other thing, Sharon, that we always see is that uh, you know our tests don't usually answer the questions that are uh, patients most want answers to. And those are things like, what will my next reaction look like? And is this the kid who's going to react to a very small exposure to the food? And if we had tests that could even get us in the ballpark for answering those questions, it would be a, a, a huge benefit to clinical practice and information for our patients. Yeah, those are great points, Bob. Um, I think many in the field are working towards that um, but uh, taking one food at a time, uh, most commonly, I think the most studied food allergy is peanut. Um, but as we know, um, there are many patients who have food allergies that don't include peanut. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done uh, in, this, in this area. Next, we'll talk about fulfilling an unmet need in treating IgE-mediated food allergies, exploring novel approaches with Dr. Wood. Okay, so uh, with this introduction to IgE-mediated food allergies, we're going to have the opportunity now to talk for the rest of our time about potential treatment approaches. And the treatment of food allergy uh, forever really has uh, involved two steps, and one is trying to avoid the food, and the second is dealing with a reaction once it happens. And while this uh, can be successful, uh, it is fraught with uh, problems, and uh, we would love to have approaches that could make food allergy uh, more easy to manage and reduce the risk of these accidental reactions. We think about accidental reactions uh, for every patient, particularly children, but even in adults, uh, you're running a risk of an accidental reaction on a day-to-day -day basis. And food allergy is something that really ends up uh, running the life of a lot of families. And when we think about all of the different ways that a child might be exposed to the food they're allergic to, uh, there's a few that stand out in, in parties and social activities, friends and family, and sometimes, uh, unfortunately, uh, even a well-meaning family member. Um, I always tell my patients there's at least one grandparent who just doesn't get it, so you need to be careful that they don't uh, uh, end up giving your child this uh, food they're allergic to. Social activities... Packaged foods are, are labeled in a uh, reasonable way, but not in a perfect way. So uh, uh, even buying a food with a label can be difficult. Uh, and then schools, especially when activities are disrupted with uh, field trips, uh, substitute teachers, uh, or again, back to parties. So the bottom line is that um, uh, there is a, a huge burden on the family to try to keep their child safe because of all these different uh, ways that they might be accidentally exposed to the food they're allergic to. And the numbers uh, about this are, are really uh, striking. So even when uh, a family has gotten uh, you know, excellent standard of care education, uh, uh, approximately 50% and 75% of patients have reported accidental ingestion for their allergen within their past five and 10 years, respectively. 
So thinking about therapies, uh, there has been a, a huge amount of progress uh, over the last 15 to 20 years. That progress is thankfully accelerating now as uh, there's been really an increasing interest in treatment approaches for food allergy. And one sort of general approach uh, is referred to as immunotherapy. And immunotherapy really means exposure to what you're allergic to, whether you're giving an allergy shot to your pollens, or in this case, uh, exposing the patient to the food they're allergic to. And this can come in a, a variety of different uh, uh, delivery methods, but the one that has moved forward uh, furthest is oral immunotherapy, where you're actually eating a small amount of the food you're allergic to, gradually increasing that exposure to the point that you have some degree of protection. And we're looking here at trying to get this delicate balance of safety, efficacy, and practicality, uh, which has been uh, difficult to achieve, although progress is occurring. So there is now, uh, beginning in early 2020, an FDA-approved oral immunotherapy product for peanut allergy. And what we saw in the large phase three study called the Palisade study, uh, that about two-thirds of participants who received the active treatment, uh, compared to 4% of those who received placebo, were able to ingest a dose of 600 milligrams or more of peanut protein without dose-limiting symptoms. And the 600 milligrams uh, it turns out to be a, a pretty important number because most accidental exposures are considerably less than that. So if you were going around every day, knowing that you can tolerate the maintenance dose, which is 300 milligrams, and even more than that with an accidental exposure, you do have uh, a fairly high degree of confidence that you're not going to have a reaction to a small accident. Unfortunately, though, there are limitations to its use. There's anaphylaxis that occurs with therapy, and this is not terribly surprising. You're feeding a patient a food they're highly allergic to, and it can be very difficult to administer. This is a daily treatment and daily maintenance is required. And as far as we know right now, that daily maintenance is forever. So this is something that um, may be of great benefit to some families, especially those whose child has experienced severe reactions or carry around a great deal of anxiety about the uh, child's peanut allergy. But it has these limitations uh, that we would uh, hope uh, uh, other forms of therapy might help move beyond. Form of therapy is thinking about biologics and the world of medicine has been uh, really uh, transformed by the use of biologics uh, over the last 10 to 20 years. And it basically involves uh, any disease that involves the immune system. So whether you're talking about a Crohn's disease or a psoriasis, or in this case, food allergy, the possibility of giving an antibody that will block some path in the immune system that leads to a food reaction is very appealing. And some of the appeals for biologics are that they are not food specific. And why is that important? Well, one reason many families are not that enthusiastic about peanut oral immunotherapy is because they're allergic to a lot more foods than peanut. And they may even be more worried about some of the foods that are more difficult to avoid. So if a family has a child who has peanut allergy, but is also allergic to tree nuts, milk, egg, and wheat, uh, they're actually not going to find a lot of appeal in treating the peanut only when they're still walking around these other food allergies. And the biologics, as far as we know and what we presume, 
will not be food specific, so they would work equally for any food allergy. Then as opposed to daily dosing, they're going to be given by intermittent dosing, which we hope would enhance long-term acceptance. They have a very high safety uh, profile. And one of these medicines, amelizumab, has been used for over 15 years now to treat asthma. So there's a large number of patients that have been on a, a medication like this chronically with a large amount of safety data. And then one of the neat things that we think about is that our, our patients with food allergy uh, very rarely only have food allergy. These are usually allergic kids that also have asthma or allergic rhinitis or atopic dermatitis. And the right biologic might actually help control their other allergic diseases while at the same time helping to prevent their food reactions. And then a dream we have is that some of these might be disease modifying. And that would mean that uh, maybe you don't need to take them forever. And this right now is an unanswered question, uh, but uh, would be uh, especially appealing if we found out that you could uh, actually reduce someone's overall uh, uh, burden of food allergy or other allergic disease by using one biologic or another. Now we'll take a little closer look at the mechanism of anti-IgE therapy, uh, which is the uh, biologic approach that we're most excited about right now and in, at this type, uh, point in time. The monoclonal antibody omelizumab binds to the IgE antibody, preventing it from binding to its receptors on mast cells and basophils, and blocking the release of cytokines and mediators from these cells. By decreasing the quantity of IgE antibodies, omelizumab reduces the number of high-affinity IgE receptors, further limiting the ability of IgE to bind to its target cells. We are excited about this because there are a number of studies, these are, are generally fairly small studies, uh, that have really suggested the likelihood that anti-IgE could work to treat food allergy. And on this slide, we're looking at four different studies, um, uh, uh, focused again, as usual, with peanut. The last study is looking at uh, foods in addition to peanut. Well, all of these studies showed that with the use of amelizumab, the threshold that would uh, cause a reaction was substantially increased, and substantially increased in some cases way beyond that 600 milligrams that we were looking at with the peanut oral immunotherapy. Dosing is intermittent, as was mentioned, but typically uh, uh, one or two, sometimes even three shots given every two to four weeks. Uh, has been uh, effective in these small studies uh, of <clears throat> showing the ability to really change someone's reaction rate or threshold to induce a reaction uh, to peanut or other foods. The other data we have uh, are studies looking at the use of amelizumab along with oral immunotherapy. And the hope here has been that you could make oral immunotherapy safer and more effective if you combined it with amelizumab. There was a study that we did here uh, looking at milk, another one in Boston looking at peanut, and then in Dr. Chintrada's group in Stanford looking at multi-food uh, allergic children. And finding in each of these studies uh, that the risk from oral immunotherapy was significantly reduced, that you could accelerate the dose increase of oral immunotherapy when they were protected by amelizumab, and that because 
uh, in all likelihood they were able to get to a higher dose more quickly, the efficacy was increased. So the clinical evidence for amelizumab in food allergy uh, really does come back to these uh, pilot studies uh, where there was a very strong suggestion uh, that amelizumab uh, could be effective in treating multi-food allergies in patients with a single food or even multiple foods. As monotherapy, it's been shown that it may increase the threshold dose for inducing allergic symptoms following exposure. And then used in conjunction with OIT, it may increase OIT efficacy and enable safe and rapid desensitization. It's hard though to compare these studies because uh, we, we typically, unfortunately, have used different endpoints in different studies. Uh, and this is something that we hope as the, as the field moves forward, we can do in a much more consistent, regimented way. I'm gonna mention a couple of studies now that are uh, ongoing at the present time. Uh, these are both phase three studies, meaning that they have the possibility of leading to an FDA approval for uh, uh, amelizumab or another anti-IG product. The first of these studies is referred to as the OUTMATCH trial. And the OUTMATCH trial is, is a complicated study as we'll look at a little bit more in the next slide uh, that is comparing uh, amelizumab to placebo, but then moving on to seeing whether amelizumab by itself uh, uh, is or is not equal to or superior to using oral, oral immunotherapy that has been facilitated by amelizumab early in the course of the OIT. So on the next slide, I think it'll be a little bit easier to uh, see um, uh, what this study is actually doing. It's divided into three stages. The first of those is a very straightforward, active to placebo comparison of amelizumab as monotherapy to placebo. This will lead to the primary endpoint of the study that will really say, is this medication effective at significantly increasing the threshold of reactivity to peanut and other foods? And every patient in this study has to be allergic to peanut and have significant allergies to at least two other foods. They then move on to stage two. And during stage two, there are two arms, a group that are going to be getting active oral immunotherapy where they get amelizumab for eight weeks before and the first eight weeks of the OIT. And that will be compared to a group who are getting uh, active amelizumab through the entire stage two and placebo OIT. So this will give us information on how patients may be managed in the long term. And we really believe that patients will sort into different groups where one group may do fine with the amelizumab alone. Another may really benefit from the OIT, especially if, it's, if it is facilitated by the amelizumab. And the third stage uh, is a long-term follow-up where we're actually looking to provide introduction of the foods that these patients came into the study allergic to in a dietary form to both uh, maintain desensitization and ideally really improve their life. The other phase three trial is looking at a drug called legalizumab, which is another anti-IgE, uh, similar to, but has enough differences from amelizumab that uh, we think it's extremely important that both of these drugs be studied together. And in this phase three study, which is focused only on peanut allergy, there are two different doses of legalizumab being compared to placebo in patients six to 55 years of age. This study just got off the ground three or four months ago 
um, and we'll be anxiously awaiting uh, results of both of these studies over the next couple of years. So the real key here is if we are able to move forward with biologic therapy, um, you know, what will this do for our patients and what are the clinical implications? And, and uh, I'll give the, a, a couple that I think um, really resonate with our patients. And one is that we think this could give sort of day-to-day -day protection. Another is if we're really lucky, it would even allow them to introduce foods into the diet. And a third is that um, it, it may in a very safe way be able to also help improve the comorbidities of uh, these patients who typically have multiple allergic conditions uh, along with their food allergy. Sharon, other thoughts about um, what a biologic might do for your patients or for the typical patient out in a primary care office? Yeah, Bob. I mean, I, I agree with what you've listed. I think I'm super excited about the possibility of another treatment um, approved for our food allergic patients. I think we need choices for our food allergic patients because no one patient um, is alike. And I think uh, food allergy is a chronic disease um, and we don't have a cure for food allergy at the moment. Um, and I think that similar to other diseases like diabetes or hypertension, patients will have medications that fit them for a particular period of their time uh, in their life. And with more choices, we have the ability to flex with the patient and their needs. Um, biologics are exciting because it addresses foods outside the top nine um, that we're talking about. And it's hard to do allergen-specific research across nine or 10 or 12 or 15 different foods um, to, to think about food-specific therapy. Uh, I agree, most of our patients that we see have many allergic diseases. So um, where we've seen success in the other, other allergic diseases like asthma and allergic rhinitis, um, where it really improves the quality of their life because of the disease improvement. Um, I think that there's huge potential here, um, not just for food allergies, but other allergic conditions, which is really exciting for our patient population. Thanks, Sharon. Great, great points. So let's, let's just go through uh, what we've uh, tried to cover uh, in this uh, fairly brief, but hopefully informative uh, presentation here. Uh, that food allergies are clearly a growing public health issue, cause significant impairment of quality uh, of life, also have uh, economic burdens. That current guidelines, uh, as they did 100 years ago, recommend dietary avoidance of the foods with administration of emergency medications in case of accidental exposure. But we know that the risk of exposure is constant and widespread. We have this critical need for better diagnostic and prognostic markers, hopefully th uh, thereby reducing, if not eliminating, the need for oral food challenges. We now have the first FDA-approved treatment for food allergy, in this case, oral immunotherapy for peanut allergy. And while this is efficacious, uh, the durability of response requires regular therapy to maintain the state of desensitization and optimal maintenance doses and frequency really are not yet known. These ongoing trials of biologics show promise in the potential to safely and rapidly desensitize patients with severe food allergies. And we're looking again at the potential for use as monotherapy or as an adjuvant OIT. We'll need long-term data to assess the durability of any of these approaches. 
but we are very excited to see how this field uh, is evolving and will evolve even more rapidly over the next five to 10 years. So uh, with this conclusion, I'd really like to thank uh, everyone involved in putting this program together, uh, a peer view um, uh, uh, for all of their support and organization, uh, Dr. Chintraja for her superb presentation and insights into this uh, field that she is a, a leader in uh, research and clinical care. And obviously to the participants who have tuned into this program, and hopefully it uh, was uh, uh, well worth your time and effort to join us today. And thanks to you, Bob. This activity is certified by the University of Florida College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash QER 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.